Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Galatians, chapter 3, and beginning with verse 15, and extending to the end of the chapter. If I can turn the page. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men. Though it is only a man's covenant, yes, if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. And this I say, that the law which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. What purpose, then, does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, And it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterwards be revealed. Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus." For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is... Our third sermon upon this passage, we have been working our way through it but bit by bit. The first sermon focused on the fact that the law was a restatement of God's first covenant. It was a, a, an ex- explanation of what it means to walk before God and be blameless. Last week, we looked at some other major points that are here um, Didn't really finish out the passage, though, and that's what we're going to focus on today. We're going to look at especially verse 26 to the end. But to get there, a little bit of a foundation. Some years ago, as Christian culture tends to be, there was a a fad which came through. It was a book. It was a book that everybody was talking about. It was the book of the hour. Uh, It was the prayer of Jabez. And everybody was reading that and talking about that. And 
among my Reformed colleagues, there was kind of a harump to the book. Uh, it's, it's not really a Reformed book, and we are, quote, really not supportive of the prayer of Jabez, several of them would say. Well, that's not really exactly the way you would want to put that. The book, The Prayer of Jabez, contains a lot more in it than the biblical reference to the prayer of Jabez. But the prayer of Jabez is a prayer you find in Scripture. It is one of the uh, very, very few things in First Chronicles that is not a genealogical table. It is... Uh, in chapter 4 and verse 9 and 10, and there you read this. Now Jabez was more honorable than his brothers, and his mother called his name Jabez, saying, Because I bore him in pain. And Jabez called on the God of Israel, saying, Oh, that you would bless me indeed and enlarge my territory, that your hand would... Seriously that your hand would be with me, and that you would keep me from evil, that I might not cause pain. So God granted him what he requested. The prayer of Jabez, quote-unquote, is actually scripture. And it's about a man whose mother looked down in the little bassinet when he was born and said, oh look, what a pain, because that's what Jabez means. She named her child pain, and one can only kind of guess why you would do that, But it's not a real positive thing, so he had to go through life saying, Hi, I'm a real pain. Nice to meet you. I'm a pain. And as you can imagine, this affected him greatly. His name was kind of like a shadow over him. And he turned to God and said, Lord, I don't want to be, my name signifies, Lord, let your grace and mercy be such that I don't live up to my name. I'm actually a blessing. And it's right in Scripture, and it's given to us to learn from, To say, I am against the prayer of Jabez, uh, you don't want to be there, because that's scripture. Among Reformed people, every now and then you hear uh, something along the lines of, you know, I just hate hearing John 3.16. Arminians quote John 3.16 all the time. They're a a John 3.16 person. I just hate that. No, you don't. You are a Reformed Christian. The term Reformed means Reformed to the Scriptures. John 3.16 is very much a passage of the Scripture. You are not against John 3.16 at all. Now, John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that those who believe might have eternal life Well, if you look at Scripture and you see who believes, it's not everybody. As the Apostle Paul says, Now, brethren, pray for us that we may be delivered from ignorant and unreasonable men, for not all have faith. God gives faith. Not all men will have faith. But God gave his Son, because he loves the world, that everyone who believes, the word belief is the verb of the noun faith, everyone who believes will be saved by him. As a Reformed Christian, you don't disagree with that. You are absolutely joyful for that because you believe. God has given you faith. 
it means God is going to save you, you are a John 3.16 Christian. You're a lot bigger than that, but you love the Bible. Or, uh, case in point, several years ago, I was at a a Bible study in a uh, Christian and Missionary Alliance church, and the the elder who was leading it turned to uh, John chapter 20, and we were reading verse 21 to 23. He read this, So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now he looked up from his reading and he said, Well, you know, I guess we really just have to give it to the Romanists. That's a verse for them. And I was thinking, what? No, we don't have to give it to them. All Scripture is from God. All Scripture points in one direction. Uh, Scripture belongs to Bible believers, and Rome teaches that the church can forgive your sins. Uh, They would base it on this passage, but does that passage really teach that? Jesus symbolically breathes on his apostles and says, Receive the Spirit. And then in the singular says, whoever's sin you remit is remitted, and whoever's sin you keep hold of is kept hold of. If it's in the singular, who is Jesus talking to? Is he talking to all the apostles, which are plural? Or is he talking to the singular spirits whom he is symbolically showing the apostles will receive? The passage, understood rightly, is Christ saying the Holy Spirit is going to move among men and he is going to make a distinction among men. There are some men who he will not move upon to remit their sins. There are some men that he will move upon and he will remit their sins. And it will be a divine action. God will be the sole author of forgiveness or not forgiveness. It is not that the church can decide, yeah, I don't know, your sins are kept, and your sins are forgiven. In context, that's not what it's talking about. It is not a, quote, verse for Rome. It is a verse in the Bible, and it needs to be rightly understood. According to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 and 17, Uh, The Apostle gives us a theology of what Scripture is in these, these verses. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. All of Scripture is given for this task, not just part of it. And all of Scripture does this task. It is all focused on it. And most importantly, for where we're going with this, the original Greek says all Scripture was God-breathed out. That's the literal Greek. 
the, the translators have wanted to help you understand what's being talked about when they say, well, it's all inspired by, by a god. But the, the original is much more profound. God breathed out these words. The, the, the term breath and spirit are synonymous. It's a picture of God himself literally speaking these words and conveying these words to his followers through the Holy Spirit. If that's the case, then there cannot be charismatic verses and Arminian verses and Lutheran verses and Reformed verses and Romanist verses. That's totally not appropriate to think because all of the Bible is God verses. God has breathed them out. It all has one purpose And if it is God-breathed out, then there are uh, a couple of things that cannot but be. One of which is Scripture partakes of God's nature. Have Have you ever written a letter to someone? Have you wanted them to consider what you wrote and respond to it? How would you feel if you wrote a letter to someone and they said, I got your letter, now um, I don't think any of it's true, I think it's a lie, and I think that you're trying to manipulate me, but you know, I really like you, I just don't like anything you say. How would you respond to that? Now, now, I like you, I just don't like anything you happen to say to me. You would be aghast and you would say, the letter partakes of my nature. What I have said in the letter is from me. It is a representative of me. You can't cut my words from me without doing incredible damage to my character. You are effectively saying, I'm a liar, and that does not suggest you like me a lot. Well, if God's word is God-breathed out, it partakes of his nature, and his nature is the very truth. In Titus chapter 1, the apostle defines God as literally the not-lying God. The apostle defines God that way. We are told elsewhere that with the wicked, God is shrewd, but that does not mean God is a liar. At no time in any way does God ever not tell the truth because his nature is truthfulness. God will not deceive you. He will not lie to you. It is not in his nature or his character to do so. Therefore, if his word partakes of his nature, it is inherently true. And that means that there are four things we can safely say about it. One, it is inerrant. God is truth himself, he knows all things, he is the creator of all things, and if God is going to speak in his word, uh, it's going to be inerrant. There's going to be no mistake, no error, no lie, no deception, none of that will ever be found there. It is perfectly true. It is infallible. It does what God wants it to do, and it cannot fail to do that. It is perspicuitous, which is 
really a funny word because does anybody here have any idea what the term perspicuitous means? It literally means clear and understandable, and nobody has any idea what the word means. But that's what it means. If God is true and he is the creator of the world and he knows everything in and out, then God's word is not going to be some cosmic mystery that man cannot fathom. It's not going to be something that an academic clique of men who are very, very highly trained are the only ones who can discern what he's talking about. It's going to be right there because God can talk to you. And then finally, it is plenary inspired. And again, that's a very large term that simply means every word in the Bible is exactly the way God put it there. The original Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic manuscript is not a testimony to what God might have said. It is literally word for word what God said in exactly the order it is found on the page. Or to quote Jesus, not a jot or a tittle will fall out of it. Because every jot and every tittle, the very smallest uh, markings in the Hebrew and the Greek alphabet, um, are from God. God's word is absolutely true. It is inerrant, infallible, perspicuous, and it is plenary inspired. Because it is, in fact, God's word. And it is all of one mission. It speaks for one purpose and there is no clash or contradiction within it. When I was just finishing my seminary career, there was a, a, a new way of being liberal that had just kind of come in. Every couple of years, liberalism reinvents itself and has a new way of attacking the word. And in this particular case, it was the concept of systematic theology versus, quote, biblical theology. Now, the term biblical theology sounds very uh, pious, doesn't it? It sounds very good. But what was meant by this is Reformed Christians believe the Bible speaks to one purpose— that it all agrees together to glorify God and to teach Jesus Christ. It, it speaks without error or clash or contradiction. And, of course, we know that those silly Reformed Christians are barbaric and concrete thinking and fundamentalists. Uh, what the Bible really is, is it's a hodgepodge of writers who did not have the same goal at all. In fact, the writers of the Bible are arguing with each other, they contradict each other a lot, and to rightly understand the Bible, you have to understand that it is an argument taking place between different people arguing with one another from different times. So, biblical theology is actually the theology that the Bible isn't divine at all. It's the idea that it is human politics under a religious guise arguing. And when I came out of seminary and I entered into the Presbyterian Church, I began to notice that at uh, minister examinations, ministers would say that. Well, you know, I believe in our, quote, systematic theology, but I really believe in biblical theology. 
Well, what they were saying was, God didn't really speak the Bible. It's a cacophony of human voices, and there's arguments here, and as we watch them argue, we can kind of grow in thought. That is not what Scripture is at all. It all points in one direction. It comes from one author, ultimately. It is God speaking through men, God does not argue with himself. God does not contradict himself. God speaks purpose, per, perfectly for his purposes. It is one message. The actual issue that we are looking at is the utter importance of systematics. All scripture is true together. It is true in the form that is found in the whole. If you have an interpretation of a passage that attacks other fairly clear passages of scripture, the one thing you can guarantee is your understanding of this passage is deficient. Because the voice of Scripture is one, it all agrees together as one, and if you are finding a contradiction, you are making it. I hit something like that just yesterday. I'm reading through a book called Christianity, which seems like kind of a broad topic, but it's a, it's a very moderate book, and in talking to me about the the uh, passages that talk about our Lord's appearance after his resurrection, our author, Ronald H. Bainton, wants me to know that there are contradictions in the scripture. I will read from him. Late Friday afternoon, he was laid in a tomb. Early on Sunday morning, according to Mark's gospel, certain women, including Mary Magdalene, came to the tomb and found it empty. There are several differing accounts of the reappearance of Jesus after the crucifixion. In one strand of the tradition, he is said to have appeared first to the women at the empty tomb. In another, it was at the shore of the Lake of Galilee. The Apostle Paul said that the Lord appeared first to Peter. The place is not mentioned. So what is Mr. Bainton telling us? He is telling us that he sees contradictions in Scripture, that when he looks at the accounts of our Lord's rising, uh, they contradict, that one says that Jesus appeared first to his disciples on the, the Lake of Galilee, one has him appearing to Mary Magdalene, and one has him first appearing to Peter. If you were only reading Mr. Bainton's book, you would think, wow, the Bible has contradictions. But if you go to the Bible and kind of run down what he's talking about, here are a few things you'll discover. One, in none of the Gospels or anywhere in the New Testament does it say Jesus appeared first to his disciples at the Lake of Galilee. It does not appear at all anywhere. So he's literally lying. But for the other two, he talks about Mark and Paul, and these we can run down. If you go to the Gospel of Mark, um, it does say that Jesus appeared first to Mary Magdalene. 
In verse 9, we read of chapter 16, Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. So it's clear he appeared first to Mary Magdalene. If we go to the passage in 1 Corinthians, which he is citing, in 1 Corinthians 15, this is the actual verse. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3 to 5. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, which is Peter, and then by the twelve. So, that's the verse reference. Do you see the word first there anywhere? Anywhere. Paul talks about him appearing to Peter, and then he talks about him appearing to the twelve. That would seem to indicate that Jesus appeared to Peter before he appeared to the twelve. But is there anything in that passage that requires Jesus to not have appeared to anybody before then? And the answer is no. Mr. Baton has an interpretation of the scripture, which for him means that the scripture is contradictory, But if you actually run down the actual biblical passages, the scripture does not contradict, or it shouldn't, and if you believe a contradiction is present, then you are the one who needs to run it down further, because all of scripture speaks with one voice. And when you look for how scripture speaks with one voice, what you are doing is you are systematizing the scripture. All of Scripture is true. Scripture talks about a lot of things. When you lay Scripture beside Scripture, you are systemizing it. You are saying to yourself, how do these things fit together? How are they true together? And you cannot not do that. If you believe anything at all to be true, you are practicing systematic theology. The moment you say eternal life means X, you are a systematic theologian. And in fact, you can't not do it and you don't want to not do it because the Lord Jesus Christ told you to love the Lord your God with all your mind. Not just with all your heart, but with all your mind. And mental activity is systemization. Now, you don't want to find yourself fighting the Bible. And it's possible to do that in this practice. Years ago, uh, when I was one of the organizers of a Reformation Society up in Iowa, we had an evening where we were talking about what does it mean to be indwelled with the Spirit. It's a doctrine you find in the Bible. It talks about the Spirit dwelling inside of you. And while we were talking about it, a number of our colleagues from more conservative reform tradition said, well, what that means is it means that you've memorized Scripture and that Scripture lives inside of you because you've memorized it. The Holy Spirit wrote the Scripture. It doesn't mean anything spiritual. It just means you memorize the Scripture. And I thought, that's really interesting because when I go to Kentucky, that's what the Christian Church, Church of Christ, tells me it means too. 
But when you look at Scripture and you lay all the various teachings about being indwelt with the Spirit, it is much more than I've memorized the Bible. It's the actual presence of the Spirit inside the believer. It is God the Holy Spirit speaking to your spirit. It is God the Holy Spirit crying out, Abba, Father. It is much more than just mere memorization. And the reason why these men really wanted it to just be memorization was because, quite frankly, they are afraid of the excesses of the Pentecostal movement. They're, they're well aware of the evils that that has caused, and so they're reacting to it and saying, okay, uh, there's not really anything like a spiritual experience, it's just memorizing scripture. Uh, that's fighting the Bible, it really is. Uh, years ago, I had a mentor in the Christian church who was working with Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 10, and when he got to verse 8 through 10, he said, well, you know, it says salvation is by grace through faith, and that is not of yourself. It's the gift of God, not by works, lest anyone should boast. Well, that can't really mean that it's really the gift of God. Uh, well, it, the, the, the concept of the gift of God applies not only to the faith, but to the grace. And if you look at the Greek, he's not wrong. God's gift in that passage is both. But he was trying to somehow make that be, well, it means that somehow man has a hand in it. And if you think about it, what he's done is he's made the Bible's case even stronger. Faith is a gift. Grace is a gift. You didn't earn grace. You can't. In fact, Paul says that. You can't earn grace. It is a gift. Faith is a gift. God has given this to us. Everything is of God. But my mentor just wasn't going to buy that. He, he wanted to find some out. And so he was wrestling with the scripture, trying to systematize it, but really trying to fight it into a theology that he found more convenient. You don't want to be there. And it is not just an Arminian like my mentor who might do that. Any Christian might end up doing that, and you don't want to do that. But having said that, it is the disciples' duty to rightly systematize the Word of God. Now, all of this is foundation for the passage in our focus text we're going to look at, Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. When I was in school at Southern Baptist, there was a, a large contingent of feminist students at the school. And this was their verse de celeb. This was the verse that they just hammered people with. God's word says, there is neither male nor female in Jesus Christ. And what that means is we are radically the same. There is not a distinction between men and women. They are perfectly equal in every aspect. Jesus Christ has come to remove every gender distinction that is out there. Once you are a Christian, you no longer see gender. 
gender has no definitional pattern for you. It doesn't matter if you're a man. It doesn't matter if you're a woman. Life is exactly the same, and you are all wired exactly the same way. Right? I mean, it does say, in Christ, you have put on Christ in verse 27, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So let's systematize that. We don't want to fight that. We believe this verse. We are not going to fight it. God's word has been revealed to us, and it says what it says, and we are glad he has spoken it, and it is part of our theology because it is part of the word of God. We are reformed to the word of God. But let's systematize it. Let's jump up to Ephesians chapter 5, and the same author, the same apostle, will write this. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blameless. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So the same apostle writing to the Christian church quotes the book of Genesis and says, now, as it was in the beginning, you had husbands and wives, and they were distinct, they were distinct roles. So it is now. Jesus Christ relates to the church as a wife. He is the husband, so there is distinction. Wives are to submit to their husbands. Husbands are to love their wives Those are not exactly the same role. So the same author who says, now in Jesus Christ, there is neither male nor female, says wives do this, husbands do that, Jesus is male, the church is female, this is different. Or, turning again to the same author, when Paul writes to Timothy in chapter 2 of 1 Timothy, he writes this beginning in verse 11. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. 
Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. So again, from the same hand, by the Holy Spirit, through the same apostle, Paul says now, women are not to be authoritative teachers in the church, and he bases it on, again, going back to Genesis, there was the fall of man, woman has a very specific role to play in that, women are not to be like men in leadership. So... Now we have the entire New Testament before us, and we have a verse that says there's neither male nor female in Jesus Christ, but we have these distinctions among Christians from the same writer. How will we systematize that? Well, the feminist answer is this. Paul didn't write Ephesians, and he didn't write 1 Timothy. Those were added later. Uh, about about a century later, by people who were not inspired by the Holy Spirit. Paul wrote Galatians, but he didn't write the others because reasons. There's no testimony from the early church that they're fake. Uh, The early church clearly carries them down as having been written by the apostle. There is no debate about who wrote them until you hit about 1850. But the feminist answer is, we don't like those passages, therefore the apostle didn't write them. We like the passage we like, and he wrote that. And that is the feminist answer. How does that stand up to God is truth and God has spoken? Can can that stand in that light? And if that doesn't stand... What can you know about God? Can can you honestly know anything about God if God's word isn't spoken by him, partaking of his nature, the truth? You, You literally have nothing to stand on. You have created a theology that you like, and the authority of it is you like it, and that's that. There's nothing saving in that. There's nothing real in that. There is only illusion. So how will we systematize this as we are called to do it? Well, Paul is talking about something very significant in our passage. He is talking about the substitutionary atonement, and he's talking about incorporation. On the last day, when you're standing before God, and God is judging all mankind, why will he deliver you? What is in you that God will look at you and say, you absolutely deserve to be in my heaven, enter into the joy of your Lord, um, I was naked, and you gave me clothes. I was hungry, and you fed me. I was in prison, and you visited me. You demand. You the one who's going to come in. You absolutely deserve. Come on in. You're the sheep. Those are the goats. On what basis will that happen? 
As we have already seen through two sermons on this passage, it will not happen on the basis of how good you are as a person. Because you yourself are tainted with sin, you are tainted with sin from the moment go, the law is there primarily to show you how sinful you are. On the last day, God is not going to look at you based on you and say, you are just a treasure, you come on into heaven. But you are going to be received by the Lord, you are going to be brought into his heaven, you are going to have eternal salvation, it is on the basis of your trust in Christ, your faith in Christ, you have laid hold of him, but Paul uses a picturesque image that is even more intimate than just grabbing hold of him, you are in him. Go through the New Testament and mark how many times the apostle uses the phrase, in Christ. You will be amazed at how many marks you make. For the apostles, there is nothing more significant than God has placed you into Jesus Christ. When God the Father looks at you, he does not see you. He sees the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are saved, you are saved by the good works of Jesus Christ. If you are saved, it is by the substitution of him for you, and you are literally put in him, and he is the Son of God, but God sees you as the Son of God. It's how the substitution happens. And Paul has been working with that with the language in Genesis. In chapter 3 and verse... uh, Well, Paul has been talking about uh, the covenant was given to Abraham and his seed. And he says, now seed is singular... It's not like it means to many, it means to one, and that one is Christ. And then he has built the concept of the covenant that the promise to Abraham is the second covenant, it refers to Christ, the law is a recapitulation of the first covenant, it doesn't reverse the second covenant, it's all about Jesus. But linguistically, you can talk about a man and his seed And without any qualification, your hearer is going to think you're talking about his offspring. And in a number of English translations, that's how they translate it, Abraham and his offspring. Paul knows you can talk that way. The original authors knew you could talk that way. And Paul himself talks that way at the end of our chapter. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, but it's plural, y'all. Y'all are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So even Paul, at the end of this chapter, talks about seed being plural because we are all the seed of Abraham. So what does he mean? What he is saying is the word seed is kind of a type and a shadow. It's singular, and it stands for the plural, and God is saying, Paul is saying God was showing through this that 
the, the offspring of Abraham, those who have faith, were all going to be in one. That there was in the language a hidden promise that we would all be in Jesus Christ, we would all be in the seed of Abraham, and on the last day, there is only one person who is going to be judged righteous before God, and that is the seed of Abraham. It is Jesus Christ, but y'all are in Jesus Christ. Every single person here who has been given faith in Christ is going to be in Christ, All of humanity is going to be rightly damned for their sins, but one, but there is going to be a whole host of men who are in the one. Jesus shall be saved, and you will be saved because you are in Jesus. And this is what Paul is talking about. When you go to the law of Moses a restatement of the righteousness of the first covenant, one of the things you discover about women is y'all have a problem. To begin with, there is a covenant sign for the entrance into the covenant, and you don't get it. It's circumcision, and women were not circumcised, which is really, really good. In Islam, you do have female circumcision, and it's mutilation. But in the Bible, women were not circumcised. That means you weren't given the covenant sign. Now, women were in the covenant. Ruth and Rahab, uh, Esther. There's lots of godly women. But the sign wasn't given to you. It was given to your brother. When you were unclean ritualistically in the law, it took you double the amount of time to be considered clean than men. If a man was unclean for a week, you would be unclean for two weeks. In the law, if you were a woman, you could go partially into the temple and pray, but you could not go very deeply into the temple. And under the law, you prayed towards the temple because God's Shekinah glory was there, and that was the focus of your praying. But you as a woman could not go where your husband could go. You were kept at bay. Why is all this? Well, quite frankly, it's because the Bible believes that the fall of man actually happened. That 6,000 years ago, there was a first sin, and while your husband was your covenant head, you did start the process. And so the law testifies women brought about the original sin. And so... Every day of your lives, under the law, it was told to you again and again and again, you, woman, began the original sin. You brought death, misery, and decay upon mankind. Lucky you. God sees you, though, in Jesus Christ. The law is a restatement of the first covenant, Jesus is the second covenant. Every female here, if you have faith in Christ and are in Christ, God looks at you and says, hey, that's my boy. You are in the Son of God. And the Son has 
perfect access to the Father. The Son is not out of reconciliation. The Son can walk directly into God's presence without fear. The Son has no limitations. And you, dear daughter of Abraham, you are in God's eyes the Son of God. In the Son of God. There is neither male nor female. There is neither Jew nor Greek. None of those distinctions matter when you stand before God. It does not mean you're no longer a woman. You women, do you want to not be a woman? Do you want to be male? You men, do you want to be female? I would assume the answer is no. And the reason is because God has designed us for different purposes. But before him, you are equal. Your wife can go into the presence of God just as you can. Your wife is as saved as you are. Your wife was baptized at her birth, not held from the sacred sign, because Jesus. Jesus balances the scales. And that is actually what Paul is saying at the end of 1 Timothy chapter 2. For Adam was formed first, then Eve... And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. One of the elders of my Dutch church up in Iowa sat through a religious class at Northwestern where the professor said, You know, whoever wrote this book, it's said to be Paul, but I don't believe that. Whoever wrote this book thought that only women who gave birth could be saved. That is clearly not what it's saying. What it is saying is, sin came into the world by what women did, but how did the Savior come into the world? It came in through a woman. And in fact, came in through a woman without any help of a man, The seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. Women brought sin. Women brought Jesus. And so God has rebalanced the scales. There is now no reason for a law to say, women, you are bad. Women, you have done this. Because God in his grace, by his miracle, which no human being could have done, by his activity... He has rebalanced the scales. He has re-given value to women. Jesus Christ was born of a virgin woman. And those who are faithful, those women who are faithful, will receive the salvation that comes through a woman. Before the Lord God in Jesus Christ, women are absolutely equal in value and, and, and worth as any man. But they are still women. You still marry wives. You still have husbands. God gave distinction between roles before the fall of man. But before God, God does not limit women. God allows them into his presence. There is just Jesus before God. 
And if you are going to be in God's presence, you are going to be in Jesus. Jesus. 